Support for the Trailblazers.fm podcast comes from the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, a national membership network that reminds us there's no cavalry coming to save the day in our communities. We are the iconic leaders we've been waiting for, the curators of the change we're seeking to see. To learn more about the groundbreaking work of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, visit tbpod.com slash achievement. You're listening to the Trailblazers podcast, where we will explore the stories of successful Black professionals. Join us as we highlight the knowledge, resources, and tools of these accomplished trailblazers to help provide the know-how, confidence, and motivation you need to blaze your trail. And now, here's your host, Stephen Hart. Welcome back, Blazonation. Happy New Year to you. It's 2018 and we've got a brand new opportunity to rise above, go way beyond and blaze a new trail this year. My mantra for 2018 is that anyone can blaze. Success is defined in many ways. I said this in episode 100, but it's worth repeating once again. Don't let your background, where you live, how much you earn or how much you failed define you. The only difference between you and many of the guests featured on this podcast is that when life punched them in the gut and they fell on their knees or flat on their back, they got back up. One of my favorite motivational speakers is Mr. Les Brown. And I love this quote of his when he says that if you fall down, try to land on your back because if you can look up, you can get up. And I'm so very excited about what God has in store for each and every one of you this year. It's my hope that we each grow stronger in 2018. But to do this, we are going to need to grow our vision. And I believe that our vision is in part about our perspective and our perception. And that said, my vision this year for the Trailblazers.fm podcast is not only to bring on inspiring people and guests that are going to pump you up and motivate you and give you that fix for the day and have you hashtag Monday motivation across social, right? My aim is to be far more strategic about the guests who we bring on and and when we actually bring them on. And so I'm going to be a little bit more deliberate about bringing on folks who not only have an amazing story to share, but who are ready to help us fine-tune parts of our strategy and our plan and, and being able to execute the great year that we're all pumped and ready to live out. And it won't always happen where every interview is part of a theme or a campaign, but Sometimes it will, and I definitely felt energized and excited as we began this year to start off with a theme and a topic that I know we can all use more knowledge on, and that has to do with our finances and how we handle our money. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking with several amazing trailblazers who will hopefully challenge and expand our thought process and help us to get a little bit uncomfortable so that we are able to engage in a change that we need to better ourselves and improve our financial fitness. I hope that these conversations are also going to invite dialogue in our community around some of the really important finance and money issues that we're refusing to have right now and discuss with ourselves and our spouses and within our community at large. And I couldn't be more excited to kick off our 2018 Trailblazer class in such a big way. Our guest today is Mr. John Rogers Jr. John is the CEO of Aerial Investments, which is the largest minority-led mutual fund in the country. And today they manage more than $12 billion in assets on the management. John's passion for investing began at age 12 when his father 
began buying him stocks as Christmas and birthday gifts. And his interest in equities grew at Princeton University, where he majored in economics. And over the two plus years that he also worked as a stockbroker for William Blair and Company. In 1983, he founded Ariel Investments and focused on employing a patient value strategy in small and medium-sized companies. John strongly believes in giving back to Chicago, and he sits on the corporate board of companies like Exelon and McDonald's and serves as trustee to the University of Chicago. In 2008, he was awarded Princeton University's highest honor, the Woodrow Wilson Award, which is presented each year to the alumnus whose career embodies a commitment to national service. Following the election of President Barack Obama, He served as co-chair for the Presidential Inaugural Committee 2009 and more recently joined Barack Obama's foundation's board of directors. In 2013, John was featured alongside legendary investors Warren Buffett, Sir John Templeton, and Benjamin Graham in the distinguished book, The World's 99 Greatest Investors. Now, in this conversation, I spoke with John about his background and impact of his own trailblazing parents, the role sports played in his success. And we also talked about the habits and traits that he thinks we all need to employ right now to become great leaders in our own right. We talked about the common mistakes that he thought investors were making and shared some of the investment options that he's looking more closely at in 2018. You definitely want to stay to the end of this conversation. I really enjoyed to the tail end of this talk where he shared his approach and the amount of time that he commits daily to reading, thinking, and learning. And I guarantee you, it will have an impact as it did on me and leave you rethinking your strategy and goals around how much you learn and how much content you consume and how much books you read. Without any further delay, let's go ahead and dive into today's conversation with Mr. John Rogers Jr. Enjoy. John, welcome and thanks so much for being our featured guest on today's episode. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. So we love to open all our conversations off from a place of gratitude. And I'd love you to share maybe an unexpected blessing that you're most grateful for in your life right now. I think most recently, my daughter was featured in a book about millennials and their giving and philanthropy. It was really nice. She There's several paragraphs on her and several mentions on her in the book. And she talks about the values around giving that she learned from me and her experiences growing up and volunteering at Arnie Duncan's mom's after-school tutoring program. Nice. It was, it was really <laughs> a, a warm surprise to pick up this book and see the recognition and the values that she was talking about. So for those of us in the community that are maybe unfamiliar with John's story, I believe you grew up on Chicago's South Side. You're the only son of two amazing trailblazers. I read that your mother was the first African-American woman to graduate from University of Chicago's law school. And your father was a Tuskegee Airman who flew combat missions in World War II. Is that right? That's right. Wow. So I know they began planting seeds in you to become an investor at an early age, gifting you stocks and the like. And I'd love you to maybe expand and share how your parents impacted and influenced your goals growing up. Well, you know, obviously, Ado, parents have such an enormous influence on you. And, you know, uh, my parents got divorced when I was three. So I got you know, very different ideas from both parents. And start with my mom, you know, the, the main thing that she taught me, and I understand later the experiences that I got growing up with her, she really made it clear to me that anything was possible. 
that if you worked hard, even though the world wasn't always going to be fair, that you could just achieve anything if you worked hard and had the appropriate attitude. And her vision about what was possible was, you know, just really clear. And it helped me, I think, to dream bigger dreams. My dad, you know, I was, he was 39 when I was born. And so he had a lot of time to think about how he wanted me to grow up. And he had a lot of key things, you know, so certain age, I had a checking account, certain age, I had a savings account. And then he made sure that at age 12, instead of getting toys for Christmas and birthday, he made sure that I got stock certificates instead. That became, you know, my exposure to the stock market. I loved reading about it. And he made the really good decision to let me keep the dividend checks that came from the blue chip stocks that he was buying for me. And, uh, you know, as a young kid, getting these checks in the mail was really kind of neat. And and then the final thing he made sure was that when I got to be 16, he made sure that I had a uh, summer job. And I spent six years as a vendor at Wrigley Field and Sox Park and the old uh, Chicago Stadium selling peanuts and popcorn and Coke and beer and hot dogs, everything you can think of. I learned an awful lot. I was a part of the SEIU, Service Employees International Union, and it was, you know, really had a big impact on my life. So, and I love that. I love all those, what they've ingrained in you. I know that another love of yours is sports, right? I believe you're the captain of Princeton's men's basketball team. And and I saw a video of you, John, where you actually beat Michael Jordan in a basketball game at his own camp. I was very (laughs) fortunate. I think that day at the camp, he had played about 20 campers before he got to me. And the other thing is the first seven years of the (laughs) fantasy camp, no one had ever beat him. So he was probably overconfident. And then, of course, the game was a short game. It was the first one to make three uh-huh. baskets. So I know that if we'd played to 20, he would have killed me. And I just got a lucky break. And um, <laughs> But it's been a lot of fun. You know, you can hear him on the video say, oh, no. Yeah, I uh, heard that. Yes. <laughs> so question, how much of your success in business do you credit to your time in sports and basketball? You know, I learned an enormous amount of playing for Coach Carrill, my Hall of Fame basketball coach at Princeton. He was a true genius. And two things that he drilled into us that I keep with me as a business entrepreneur is number one, teamwork. He really made you understand that you think about your teammates first. And so as I built Ariel, we've tried to create a team culture here where everyone is an owner in the business. Everyone has a chance to share in decision making. And we try to find ways to look out for each other and encourage our teammates to be involved in their favorite charities and community activities. And we really want to support them in that way. So that sense of teamwork really is showing up in the way that we built our firm, the way we care about our customers, always trying to come through for them and service them in the appropriate way, because of course, they're part of our team too. And so teamwork was really job one that Coach Creel pounded home to us. The second thing was that Princeton basketball was known for its precision, the way that we run our plays, Mm -hmm. everything had to be done just the right way. You had to set a screen with the right angle. You had to make your cuts with the right angle. You had to make every pass exactly at the right spot. And if you didn't do things in the precise way that Coach Krill wanted you to do it, he would stop practice and make it very, very clear what you should do differently. Make sure that we ran our plays with true precision and true excellence. So that's how I've tried to build our firm is to say, if we're writing a quarterly letter, we're going to write it hopefully with you know, no uh, misprints, no misspellings. We're going to try to have our research process run with precision, our compliance and technology. We want run with precision. Everything has to be done the right way. And there's no excuse for doing it second best. 
Right. I love that. So today, this has led to you now running the largest minority-run mutual fund firm in the country. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, as I was preparing for this call, I had the pleasure of listening to an interview you did with Consuela Mack on WealthTrack. And for those listening, I'll make sure I put the link to that video in the show notes over at tvpod.com if you want to watch that video. But Consuelo made a great statement worth sharing with our Blazer Nation. And it said of the 525 U.S. stock mutual funds that existed 30 years ago, only 223 are still operating today and only six are run by the same manager. And that is amazing because, John, you're one of the six remaining managers. And so hats off to you for that. And I'm curious to know what's still driving you in the work that you're doing now with Ariel some 34 years after you started the company. Well, thank you. You know, I think one, I'm very, very competitive. And so, you know, I really want to make sure that we continue to win here and deliver excellence for our shareholders and that are in our Ariel Mutual Fund family. You know, performance is job one. And, you know, so that keeps you working hard every day, reading and going to the conference calls and being on the conference calls, going to meet with management teams, do our research as thoroughly possible before we make investments. But the other thing is, you know, we are trying to do something different here at Ariel that's never been done before. You know, we have a really extraordinarily diverse team, you know, with Melody Hobson, who's our excellent president, who leads so much of what we do at the firm. We really want to show people that a diverse firm run by women and people of color can be successful and compete with Fidelity and Vanguard and T. Rowe Price and these giant firms. That you know, There's a place for a firm like us that believes that if you have diverse talent, you're going to make better decisions and you're going to have better performance because you bring different perspectives to the decision-making. The other thing we also believe in is we want to be a firm with a conscience. And so we've been focusing a lot at Ariel around how to help solve the wealth gap between the African-American community and the majority community. And doing that through a variety of things from, you know, starting a small public school over 20 years ago to our Black Corporate Directors Conference to initiatives we have to supply or create opportunities for minority students at the University of Chicago to work in endowment offices, in investment offices of endowments and having paid internships during the summer. So we're constantly trying to find ways that we can make a difference. So that's what drives us. If because, you know, we want to show that a firm like us can really make a difference and leave a legacy of service and diversity and great, great performance. Yes, I love that. We're going to touch on some more of that here in a second. Yeah, I'm curious before we dive into some, I wanted to talk with you a bit about leadership. But before I do, you know, obviously the paychecks must be a lot better than they were back in the 80s. But how do you balance, right, success and humility and what's managed to keep you grounded through all of this? All that you've accomplished. Well, well, thank you. I, I think it's two things. I mean, one, this business itself is a very, very humbling business. It is. Yeah. You can feel really smart or really dumb, you know, and you buy a stock and it goes down dramatically. It's going to humble you. You know, it's going to keep mm-hmm. you down to earth as you have to go out and explain to clients how you made that mistake. And it's hard. And your performance is visible every single day. People can look up Aerial Fund and see how. We're doing every day. There's no place to hide. And the second thing, my father always brought me up, you know, to always be a, a low key kind of humble person. You know, he was that kind of person, and he made you understand that you should never feel like you were better than anyone else, and you're going to engage everyone and treat everyone the way you'd like to be treated. Yes, that's good. So you touched on the diversity within your team, and I know you've been tasked with with leading and continuing to develop this impressive group over at Ariel. Why do you love leading people? Well, you know, it's fun. Uh, I think it's fun. You know, I, 
I, you enjoy making a difference. You enjoy seeing the impact that you can have on other people uh, around these core values that we believe in so much. So, yeah, I think, I think all of us, when you, you know, you're in this world, you want to leave a legacy. And the way you can best leave a legacy is by coaching up and coming younger people and hopefully having a chance to, you know, maybe think, have them think about their leadership in a different way because they've had a chance to interact with you. You get to see that some of your values are included with people not only at Ariel, but as they leave Ariel and go and work at other places. Mm-hmm. It was kind of neat. Two of the top African-Americans at Northern Trust Bank, for example, worked at Ariel. Really? Wow. And it's kind of cool. Jason Tyler, one of the young men, Shondron Thomas is the first African-American to be on the management committee at Northern Trust. And, you know, he interned here at Ariel. And then Jason Tyler, who is uh, one of the top you know, African-American leaders there, he worked here for a number of years. But he'll tell me and talk to me about, and he'll show me the things that he's talking to his team about that he learned at Ariel. And, you know, it's wow. kind of, it's just neat to see. And, you know, Arnie Duncan often talks about that I've had an impact on his life and watch because I've known him since he was 10 and to see grow from wow. working here at Ariel to being the school superintendent in Chicago and then to be a cabinet secretary in President Obama's administration. You know, it just yeah. is kind of cool that he'll talk about the things that he learned from me and Ariel that have impacted his life in a positive way. So there's lots of those kind of fun stories. And of course, people like Melody who are working here every day and then going out and giving speeches all over the world often talking about the values that have been instilled in her here at Ariel. Right, right. You touched on this a second ago. You know, I've heard it said that abundant thinkers feel forward. And I'd love to maybe pick your brain, right? And hear your thoughts on maybe what's been one of your biggest failures or challenges as a leader of Ariel that maybe helped lead you to some of the firm's bigger breakthroughs, you know, some of your biggest breakthroughs probably through those challenges. I think, you know, the greatest challenge we had was that in 2008, we didn't Mm -hmm. perform well. We underperformed our benchmarks, underperformed our competitors. We lost a lot of clients during 08 and early 09. And that was an extraordinarily tough period. And we had to have our first set of layoffs. And so it was a real test, you know, when we had dropped all the way down to managing only about $2 billion, $2.5 billion at the bottom. And now we're back, you know, approaching $13 billion. And part of it is because we learned from that tough period. We learned some things we need to improve our processes of how we pick stocks. But we kept our core teammates together because I think they were, again, all owners in the business. and They believed in what we were trying to do and they stuck with us through that tough, tough time. And then we ended up having, we've been number one in our category in performance from the March 9th low of the stock market till today. And so what we learned through that near-death experience helped make us stronger, helped make us better. And we made decisions that allowed us to have terrific performance coming out of that tough economic time. Mm-hmm. Interesting how you share that, you know, so many of your core people stuck with you. You know, in a recent Black Enterprise article, you actually discussed the need for stronger minority leadership in majority companies. And I'd love your thoughts on what you've maybe observed to be the most important habits or traits that young minority leaders need to develop if we hope and aspire to become better leaders. Well, I, you know, I'm, I have strong, strong opinions on this. And this is why we started our Black Corporate Directors Conference was to help engage up and coming board members and existing board members to help them understand that they have a responsibility to fight for civil rights and inclusion once they're in the boardroom. And it came about from this hypothesis that I had of being on a number of boards, corporate boards and nonprofit boards, 
investing in public companies for my, you know, my living and finding that there were very few legacies that I saw where black board members were really changing the behavior inside those companies. So they were there, but they weren't speaking up. They weren't speaking up. And so therefore, yeah, they were giving stat, you know, they were really giving permission for that company to continue to do things the way they'd always been doing it because they weren't speaking up. And so you would see that companies and nonprofits, you know, weren't doing business with minority firms outside of construction and catering and things like that. They weren't, you know, getting a more diverse workforce within their organizations at the leadership ranks and the management committees. And they weren't forcing the majority companies that they worked with, the investment banks, the law firms, the accounting firms, the consulting firms, to have minority partners on the relationship with those institutions. To your question, what I... What really inspired me was, you know, I came of age at a time when Harold Washington was the mayor of Chicago, Maynard Jackson was the mayor of Atlanta, Coleman Young in Detroit, others who are out there insisting that we get included in everything in those respective cities. That if you were an investment bank and you came to do business in those cities, you had to have, you had to bring minority partners on your team. Minority firms are going to have a real opportunity to do work in those cities. And those mayors, you know, use their bully pulpit and their moral persuasive powers to get the anchor institutions in those communities to live those values. And so that's what we're trying to do today through our Black Directors Conference is to channel that kind of leadership that Maynard and Harold and others had for the next generation of African-American leaders to live those values. Right. And we definitely need more outspoken leaders in that regard today in the social climate we have right now. I wanted to spend the rest of the time I have with you talking about building generational wealth. You know, I read a recent study that was published in September by the Institute for Policy Studies that stated essentially that by 2024, so just a few short years from now, median Black and Latino households are projected to own 60 to 80% less wealth than they did back in 1983. And I found a statistic interesting. You founded your company back in 83, and you've been able to develop significant gains for your investors through your slow and steady investment approach, right? But in general, I feel like our society has moved backward. We've moved towards almost promoting excessive spending and living on borrowed money. And you touched on some of this earlier. You know, We haven't been educating our, our next generation on how to handle money. And so this vicious cycle you know, continues. What are some of the common financial mistakes that you've seen us as a community and as investors making? And where do you think we're missing the mark with managing our money wisely? Well, I guess to answer that question directly, I think it's really hard because we start from so far behind because of the way we came to this country, the Jim Crow that has existed in this country, the racism and lack of opportunity that we've had to really fully participate equally in our capitalist democracy. And then because mm-hmm. of that and the housing segregation that we've lived with, we end up you know, having to have support extended families. And so whatever savings we start to accumulate, we find out we have a cousin or aunt or somebody who needs help you know, put their child through college or you know, be able to retire comfortably. We have to help our extended families. And so that makes it really hard for us to save in the way that the majority community that has multi-generational wealth and didn't have to face the kind of discrimination that we face. So it's hard for us to keep up because we're behind the eight ball. The other thing that makes it hard is we don't trust the stock market and we typically invest in real estate. And I give the example of my dad. My dad did a lot of South Side real estate investing after he got out of law school. 
he always said these, you know, these buildings he was investing in were going to be what paid for me to go to college. But the problem was because he only could invest on the south side because of the, you know, the restrictions that we had in the city at different times and restrictive covenants and the like, the south side real estate did not appreciate nearly in the same way that properties up in the North Shore, Lake Forest and Lake Bluff did. Or the north side of Chicago or the west side of Chicago with Hinsdale and, you know, Bolingbrook and all those suburbs that really went forward, those communities didn't have many of us. And so the opportunity to make real wealth through real estate investing was really, you know, made much more difficult because of the housing segregation that we face as a community. And because we're not as comfortable in the stock market, we again disproportionately put our savings into real estate. And so this, you know, again, it all comes down to the remnants of uh, slavery and Jim Crow and, you know, the way that we've been viewed in this country. It's just it's tough to overcome that. So, you know, and I feel like when you're poor, you're not thinking about getting ahead. You're kind of just worried about getting by, right? I have looked at your slow and steady approach, though, and I feel like it still should be able to add some measure of hope, right? Even for someone maybe in their 30s or 40s right now who maybe aren't where they need to be. What's been your practical first step of advice for those who are behind? You know, what can they begin to do to move in the right direction towards paying down debts and getting in a mindset more so than anything about the value of saving money and reducing spending? You know, I won't probably give you the complete answer that you want. I mean, I think, you know, you've got to put money, of course, away into your 401k plan and you've got to you know, have a 529 program for your kids and put money away steadily and on a monthly basis. And, and then in your 401k, lean in, put money into the equity funds that are available and not be too conservative. Typically, we people of color are too conservative when we invest in our 401k plan or our 529 plan. But at the end of the day, we have to get more minority-owned businesses into our communities because then we hire each other. And that's the best way for there to be wealth in the lower income parts of our society is that we have to have more job opportunities in our urban communities for people of color and more career paths and more role models of business leaders doing well in the business world. And that's why it's so incumbent for our anchor institutions to do what kind of what Exelon Corporation does, McDonald's Corporation, again, Northern Trust that I mentioned earlier, places like the University of Chicago. Those places, those anchor institutions work with minority-owned businesses, and those minority-owned businesses go out and hire other minorities and create wealth in urban communities. Too many of the other institutions in our community don't do that. You know, they talk a good game about diversity and supplier diversity, but at the end of the day, they're not really working with minority businesses across the board. I look at here in Chicago, DePaul, Loyola, Columbia, IIT, Roosevelt, you know, those institutions don't really work with minority businesses across the board. Similar with big corporations like Walgreens, they don't include us. So then how do you expect us to kind of create the wealth that we need to be able to save and to be create opportunities for the next generation if these institutions won't help us build our businesses and include us in the leadership of their institutions? So I appreciate you saying that and sharing this. I know I've grown up, I grew up in Jamaica in a family of love, but you know, my both my parents came from a rural area of the island and maybe not financially wise to you know, saving. My wife and I have hopefully changed that path, right? And are saving aggressively through our 401ks, as you mentioned a minute ago, and trying to save for college for the kids and save beyond too for a better start for them than we had. But I'd love to invite you to help us broaden 
probably our investment knowledge and just awareness towards the new rules that because you talked about, you know, us having coming from behind, right? What are some of the new rules that we need to begin to begin building generational wealth from our generation moving forward? How can we begin to employ your slow and steady process to not only help us get to a point that's right for us at retirement, but to be able to pass off the right wisdom and assets to those that we ultimately, you know, will, will leave behind someday? I know you talked about some of the education pieces earlier. Yeah, well, from an educational standpoint, you know, I think that, you know, what we've done, you know, we created the Aerial Community Academy where we're teaching kids about the stock market and, again, giving them real money to invest as young people and get the exposure that my father gave me. I think we need to be exposed to the financial services industry and think about career paths within financial services because then you learn so much if you're working at a big bank or your private equity firm or a venture capitalist. Not only are you going to make a lot of money, but you're going to learn a lot about the financial markets and be able to share that with your children and your aunts and uncles and parents and grandparents. We need to be fully involved in this ecosystem where the wealth and jobs are being created today. You know, just use an example, Steve Schwartzman from Blackstone make $600 million a year and employ 600,000 people. You know, it's you, we want to be included in that part to the economy where the wealth and jobs and role models are being created today. And unfortunately we haven't had that exposure in those opportunities. So John, I know you talked about, you know, being able to do some educational programs there in Chicago. Is there coursework that maybe could be developed that leaders of nonprofits could use and companies could use to educate a much broader base of people nationally. I feel like maybe that curriculum or that knowledge isn't getting out to the mainstream in some way. That's a fair question. You know, what I chaired uh, President Obama's committee on financial literacy for young Americans. And the conclusion that we, our committee gave to President Obama was that we need to find a way to get more financial services companies to partner with urban public schools in a Mm -hmm. meaningful way so that they can help create robust financial curriculum in public schools. And then again, by having their team in those schools on a regular basis, be role models for financial services careers and for those young people to learn the things they need to learn. I think that's an important thing to do. The second thing we're happy to do is to share our financial literacy curriculum with anyone we think that it's, it's something we're quite proud of, and Melody Hobson's helped to fund that along with some other nonprofits that were helping us fund a really great curriculum. And so we really want to share it with other public schools. So I think it's we got to do both. you got to get the public schools to have the right curriculums around financial literacy, but you need to get these financial institutions to be in the schools, helping the teachers be prepared to educate kids around the stock market and saving and investing and all the things you need to do to to be able to retire comfortably someday in our country. Right. And I appreciate you hanging with me. I know that with Ariel, you're geared to employing your strategies for more maybe institutional and high net worth investors. But yeah, I'm just, I am impressed and I appreciate you being here. I'd love to maybe have you share maybe some of your investment philosophies more around mindset that's helped you remain standing for some 30 years and maybe close out with any you know stocks that you think we can look ahead to 2018 as smart investors and maybe pay some attention to well you know there's a lot there i would say that you know number one thing to be a successful investor you know the john templeton one of the great investors of all time he always said if you want to get above average returns you have to buy the stocks that the average person isn't buying. You know, Warren Buffett, today's greatest investor, always says that, you know, you've got to be a contrarian to be a successful investor. 
be greedy when others are fearful. And one thing that Warren Buffett and I share is this idea that being a long-term investor is critical. You know, our logo is a turtle. We believe in that old Aesop's fable that slow and steady wins the race. One of my favorite quotes. (laughs) Yeah. So when I talk to young people about being a successful investor, I always say, think about the stock market over a 10 and 20 year period. What companies do you want to own that you feel really sure are going to still be around and be successful 10 to 20 years from now? Not try to trade the market on the short term or worry about the headlines in the newspaper every day or what's being on with Kramer screaming about on CNBC, but truly take a long-term perspective to investing. So if you're contrarian and you think long-term, that's this, I think it's a, that's the core values of what Ariel is all about. Our favorite stocks today are, you know, we own KKR, which we think is a terrific private equity firm based in New York that, you know, Henry Kravitz created. And it's a, it's a very, very successful private equity firm. We own a company called Lazard. It's a big company. It's a big investment bank based in New York. Vernon Jordan actually works there along with Bill Lewis. And it's probably one of the most successful investment banks in the world that has diverse leadership. And we own Zebra Technology that makes barcodes and is utilized to keep track of inventory for everyone from major retailers uh, to Amazon. And then if you're looking at a really contrarian idea today, a company that's not doing well, that maybe we'll get back on track, uh, Mattel, the toy company, is one of our favorites. And, you know, it's not performed well. It's really cheap. But it is a, they've got some great brands from Barbie to American Girl to Fisher Price, Hot Wheels, you know. And last, we think about kids-related companies that are cheap and out of favor. Viacom is interesting. You know, it's, they own Nickelodeon, uh, they own BET, they own MTV. These are all, you know, kind of great brands in the television world that often attract younger viewers. People are nervous about that world today, but we think if you've got the right content, you will still be able to thrive, whether your content's delivered on the phone or over uh, the traditional television. Love it. I appreciate you sharing that. Lots of nuggets of wisdom here. I had some good tips. You mentioned Warren Buffett just a second ago, and I'm curious to know how much time you you spend each day or each week reading, learning, and thinking. Yeah, I gather I read on average four hours a day. Four hours a day? Uh, Yeah. Wow. That's what I've done for this 37 years since I got home from college is that I'm just reading and reading all day long, you know, morning, noon, and night, and, you know, reading about the stock market typically through business publications and magazines and newspapers, reading research reports from Wall Street, uh, reading books on great investors and different investment strategies and philosophies. And also, of course, I love reading biographies on leaders, like I'm reading the new Muhammad Ali bio and finding it extraordinarily fascinating. You know, so I'm always reading. Well, you teed me up for our question here about what books or resources you're reading right now. You mentioned Muhammad Ali. Are there any other books that you think our Blazer Nation would enjoy maybe checking out? The classic books, you know, it's hard not to talk about those. You know, entrepreneurship, you know, there's great John Johnson's book, Succeeding Against the Odds, is an extraordinary read for how you can build an African-American business from scratch, a $500 loan you know, build it into Ebony and Jet Magazine. There's a great book about the stock market called A Random Walk Down Wall Street that is one of the most popular investment books in history that a Princeton professor, Burt Malkiel, wrote in the 70s and has been updated constantly since. 
And then finally, you know, then from an investment book standpoint, The Making of an American Capitalist, the book about Warren Buffett's life by Roger Lowenthal is absolutely fantastic. Mm. And, uh, wow. and then, you know, lastly, you know, from a leadership standpoint and some of the values we talked about, Adam Grant wrote a wonderful book. He's a Warden Business School professor. It's called Give and Take. And it basically makes the case that givers are more successful in life than takers. And it's a wonderful read. So those are some of my favorites. I will make sure I have everyone that I have not read on my checklist coming into the new year. Last question for you, John. Thank you so much. I appreciate your knowledge, your wisdom, your insights. Our last question for today is, I'd love for you to share one action that our trailblazers hopping off this call should take right now, this week, to help them blaze their trail. I think ultimately, if you're an up-and-coming leader, the most successful way to be successful is to be the ultimate teammate, where people know that they can count on you, that you're going to get things done, you're going to do what you say you're going to do, live up to the commitments that you make to others, uh, you're going to listen to others, you know, figure out ways to help your teammates. So ultimately, at the end of the day, I think if you can show up as a great teammate, great success happens. And I think that's some yes. of the reasons I've had some great opportunities come my way is that people know they can count on me and I'm going to try to be a, a good teammate. John, thank you so much. I appreciate your being here, sharing your story, sharing your journey, sharing your wisdom. Thank you so very much. I've been blessed by this conversation today. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Trailblazers podcast. I'll be posting links to all of today's book recommendations and links mentioned on our show notes page at tbpod.com. If today was your first time listening to the Trailblazers podcast, I just want to extend a warm Trailblazers welcome to you. We're so happy to have you here and we encourage you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and browse through some of our past episodes to keep the knowledge flowing. If you're a fan of the podcast and today's content, and you're maybe already subscribed to the podcast, please continue to share and invite your friends, your family, your colleagues to listen to an episode that you think might impact them most. We believe that someone listening to these inspiring stories will be moved to make significant changes that will have generational impact for many others, both now and well into the future. Don't miss next week's episode. New episodes are released each and every Monday by about 5 a.m. Eastern. Trailblazers, jump off this podcast today. Go find a way to rise above, go way beyond, and keep blazing your trail. Cheers. Cheers.